Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. So, good deal. All right, Brian. Okay, well, there goes three quarters of my 10 minutes. I'm watching your minutes. Go ahead. Okay, all right. (laughs) All right, uh, today's key proverb that I want to address is going to be 16.6, so you can have that one ready. I'm not going to hit that for a minute or two here. So first of all, to get some momentum, last week we talked about how David was a man after God's own heart. We saw certainly that he failed to guard his heart. He lingers on the rooftop, and he winds up in a hot mess, to quote Shannon. And the truth is, as wonderful as the book of Proverbs is, for all its advice about staying on the right path and uh, avoiding foolish choices, Proverbs is also a brilliant source to help us when we're bogged down in our prodigal ways. So it's wisdom for the ditch as well. Uh, There's the saying for every mile of road, there's how many miles of ditch? Two miles. And so who has not wound up in that ditch once or twice, veered off the path, maybe let defenses down, didn't guard your heart, and so you wound up in that hot mess or perhaps a mess not so hot, but still a spot of regretful bother. Now, I'm not going to tattle on Shannon, but perhaps your excellent Bible teacher knows something about time in the ditch. And in fact, I ran this paragraph by her this afternoon because I didn't want to offend her. And uh, do you remember what you, you responded with? <laughs> I said, I have a second home in the ditch. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's uh, I appreciate your honesty. Anyways, up here in Canada, spring finally hit this week. So almost all of our snow is finally gone. And the five or six months of accumulation, it's nice to see that disappear. The interesting thing is because it melts so rapidly when the warm weather hits, melt water uh, fills the ditches and it puddles in little spots in our parks. So when you try to go for walks, it's a bit tricky. Unlike Arizona, our ground here is very soft. And even when you walk across the, the snowless grass, uh, the grass is soggy, your shoes will get muddy. And this is the time of year when it feels like every mile of walking, there are more than two miles of ditch. And sometimes life is like that. So for whatever reason, folly promotes uh, kind of a life off of God's path that seems all too enticing. So before I get to our proverb, there, I want to give you two others. One of them is Proverbs 25, 26. And it says, like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous person who gives way to the wicked or to give way to wicked choices. Now let me paraphrase it this way. The ditch is a place where you're going to get mud on your face is essentially what that proverb is like. And so let's be honest, we're all prone to getting stuck on occasion. The second proverb I want to give you is 20 verse 9. And it says this, Who can say I have kept my heart pure? I am clean and without sin. And of course, the answer to that is no one. And in fact, that's such a great proverb that it's essentially found in 1 John 1, 8. So back to now to the key proverb. And it says this, 16, 6. Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, a person avoids evil. Now, to be honest, I wish that the second half of that proverb, 6b, was where we lived all of our lives 24-7. And then we could paraphrase it this way and say, I have enough respect for the Lord that I avoid all foolish choices 24-7. So ideally, Proverbs is the evil avoidance manual the evil avoidance manual. Of course, that's ideally. However, guess what? We don't live in the land of ideal. 
There is a 6A that precedes the perfect 6B scenario of our, our proverb. And what does 6A suggest? It suggests that sin, foolish choices, are kind of like the famous brand of battery, ever ready to charge in and derail us. But the good news is through love and faithfulness, you can get out of the ditch. And I want to be clear though, 16.6 is not promoting atonement for sin that rivals what Jesus did for us through the cross event. And nor did this proverb ever displace the sacrificial system of the temple era. Now keep tracking with me because I'm positive that this proverb brings us full circle back around to our mention of David being a man after God's own heart. A little bit about me. I was raised in a conservative evangelical church and those churches, at least to me, seem to suggest that without near perfection, you could never claim to be a person after God's own heart. In fact, if I was to poll you and saw your faces right now, how many of you would feel a little uncomfortable or unworthy if I was to suggest that you were a woman after God's own heart? How many? Yeah, I see that hand. We're going to have an altar call shortly. <laughs> and uh, several months ago, I preached in Arizona and uh, talking about how we are all saints. And Shannon, I remember I texted you about that. How do you feel about being called Saint Shannon? And, mm -hmm. and there's an awkwardness about it, right? But let me make this point. If David, a rather flawed person, could still be a person after God's own heart, why not you? So here's what I see as the determining factor. It's love and faithfulness, not love and perfection. And this is a key point. Imper imperfection in us in no way negates our love for God, nor does it negate his love for us. Because face it, the human beings that we love in our lives are all flawed, are they not? Perhaps a more realistic approach to faithfulness is to define it this way, that no matter how many times we hit the ditch, we do not quit, or at least we don't quit for too long. We are faithful to do what? To dust ourselves off, to do the right thing, and to get back on God's path. You're familiar with the old saying, three steps forward, how many steps back? Well, that depends how evangelical you are, right? Two steps back. But what does that saying suggest to you? In fact, how does it make you feel when you talk about three steps forward, two steps back? Does it breed frustration in you, impatience at your lack of progress? And in fact, do we focus more on the two steps back than we do on the three steps forward? And I wonder, how do you think our Heavenly Father feels about our track record? So let's rephrase that saying for this season that we're looking at in David's life. Two steps forward, three or more huge steps back for David. Because he crashed and burned in a very, very deep ditch. And we certainly don't know all that went on in that year between the adultery and murder, and then the subsequent thou art the man from Nathan that we looked at last week. And I wonder in that year, was David's guilt meter operating properly? Was he repressing his conscience? I wonder if he and Bathsheba ever talked openly about their transgressions. Now, I gave you some homework last week, and that was to just check out Psalm 51. And it's commonly thought, traditionally, that it was written by David after Nathan's pronouncement, Thou art the man. And I think of Psalm 51 as an expression of love and faithfulness from David. What an indicator of a person after God's own heart that he could write that, despite what had just happened. It's a psalm that shows David climbing out of the ditch. And verses 8 through 12 stand out to me, and it's this. I memorized it years ago in the King James Version, so pardon me for if I speak a different language. 
But he says, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. The bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. It goes on to say, and you know this from the old chorus, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And it's amazing that something so beautiful, so passionate, it can only be written from a place of utter failure and yet from steadfast belief that God would hear his cry and would restore him. I recently heard a sermon illustration that my nephew preached and the illustration I actually wrote down because I wanted to do some further research on it. So I, I did a little digging of my own and it's apropos for our discussion. There's a Japanese concept called Kintsugi and it has similarities to another Japanese philosophy called wabi-sabi. I mean, I'm not making that one up. It's, it's not a, a sushi menu item. But what this philosophy is, is it's a, an embracing of what is flawed or imperfect. Now, here's what I really found fascinating. The kintsugi, which is also known as kintsukurai, it literally means in Japanese, these two words, it means golden repair. Now, here's the custom. This golden repair is the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery by mending the areas of breakage with a, a lacquer that's dusted or mixed with powdered gold, silver, or even platinum. So here's what's fascinating. Instead of throwing away what is broken as if it's irredeemable and useless, this philosophy treats what, what is broken and it treats repair as part of the history of an object rather than as something to disguise, cover up, and notice also, notice the materials that are used to mend the cracks. They're valuable things, gold, silver, platinum. But they're not as valuable as the precious blood that Jesus shed for us to repair what's broken in us. And I can't help but think, how beautiful is that imagery? And I wonder, isn't God really like that? God doesn't discard us, nor does he pretend that stuff never happened. God doesn't celebrate our brokenness but he does use his loving artistry to make something beautiful out of the pieces, to make all things work together for good. Let me give you a quick warning, first of all, though. Don't keep other people in the ditch through your unforgiveness or even through your gossip, through dredging up their failures. Because if we rummage around in the dark corners of our hearts, we may find that there's a bitterness that says that some people don't deserve to get out of the ditch. And if we have any of that in our lives, then we better get on our knees with Psalm 51 in front of us. Sometimes we think we're protecting God's perfect path when all along, all we're doing is yanking people deeper into the ditch down to our level. And think about this. Maybe the stones we reach to cast aren't found on God's path, but those stones are at the feet in the ditch that we are so at home in. C.S. Lewis said this, one of my favorite sayings. He says, I know all about the despair of overcoming chronic temptations or about trips to the ditch. But he says, no, amounts, no amount of falls will really undo us if we keep picking ourselves up each time. We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. But the bathrooms are ready, the towels are put out, and the clean clothes are in the airing cupboard. The only thing fatal is to lose one's temper and to give up. It is when we notice the dirt that God is most present to us. In fact, it is the very sign of his presence. And so I'm going to close with this, another saying, and it's from Brendan Manning, 
Ragamuffin Gospel. And I'll approach it this way. Could it be that Jesus is actually saying to each one of you tonight the following? Has it crossed your mind that I am proud you accepted the gift of faith I offered to you? That I'm proud that you freely chose me after I have chosen you? Do you realize that I'm proud that with all of your warts and wrinkles, you haven't given up on me yet? I'm proud that you believe in me enough to try again and again. Are you aware how I appreciate you for wanting me? And so remember, through love and faithfulness, you can get out of any ditch. Stay faithful. Mm, amen to that. Man, I love that. I love both of those quotes so much mm -hmm. because I think that in general, that's what it's all about. Why was David a man after God's own heart? He kept getting up and moving towards him. Um, you know, muddied and bleeding and tattered. He just kept getting up and going after him. And I, I just love that. So, um, okay, so we're going to dig in. I'm going to start with a statement that I made last week, and then we're just going to uh, move right along. From the beginning of creation, God desired, for lack of a better word, our partnership. We are to partner with God to reflect him as image bearers. And although sin marred the image, God still desires our partnership. So even in our brokenness, through trust, God can still use us to bear his image. But it only works in partnership, trust, and dependency. So think about it. The nation of Israel was to be his special nation, his partner. And David was their king. And as their leader, what, what did God want from the nation of Israel? They were going to bear his image in order to usher in something very important, the Messiah. If you think about us, though, we, he wants a partnership and a relationship with us because through trust and dependency and relationship, we bear his image. And although, uh, you know, we're not ushering in like the nation of Israel, uh, the Messiah, we're ushering in his kingdom. And so it's always been through that partnership. And so when David uh, sinned, the, the key word that Nathan said was this. He says, you despise the word of the Lord. You treated it with contempt, um, which means that you consider someone or something to be unworthy of respect or attention. So in other words, David forgot his position. Isn't that the problem? Wasn't that Saul's problem? God is king. David was to be prince. And so David got ahead of himself. He forgot his position. He forgot his partnership with God. And he entered into a place of power. You see, when David was a servant, think about it. He depended fully on God, did he not? He depended on God for his safety, for his very, uh, for provisions he trusted in the word of God like it was a lamp unto his feet. But yet when he got power, it seems that along with that came ease. And along with that came privacy. And along with that came a lack of accountability. And when we look at all of that, what happened? He took his eye off of things above and he put his eye on a very beautiful woman. And uh, we talked about, you know, what happened with that it was a downward spiral. And bottom line, he took what didn't belong to him. She did not belong to him. And that sin progressed into killing. And do you remember how last week we saw 
uh, so much of the parallel with the story of Genesis. And so you see David's sin led to, right, the killing of his brother or his, uh, one of his top fighting men, Uriah. And not only did he kill him, he had absolutely no um, remorse, it seems, because when he heard the story, do you remember what he told the messenger to go back and say to Joab? Hey, hot power version, crap happens. All right, stuff happens. You know, and war, some die, some live, you know, don't take it to heart, Joab. You know, things like this happen. And so you wonder, how the heck did David, this passionate man that wrote the psalm, that cared for the sheep, that didn't lay his hand on Saul, didn't kill him, how in the world did he become so calloused? And then you think, well, how did one minute Adam look at Eve and go, oh my goodness, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Like, hallelujah, look at her. She's mine. She's made for me. And then in a moment, he turns and literally throws her under the bus. I mean, how, how does that happen so fast? How do you become so calloused? And so last week, we ended with the idea that sin has personal cost. It has a personal cost. As Brian said, it dims your potential and it compromises your character. I read to you Hebrews 3, 12 through 13, that said, take care brothers, lest there be any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, and this is the key part, that none of you may be hardened by the deceit of sin. So you don't get calloused. So you don't get used to it. You don't get calloused. You don't get calloused in the deceitfulness and the justification of sin. And so although David seems to have become outwardly hard-hearted, I can't help but wonder what is really raging inside. And that's when we went to Psalms 32 and read some verses like this. So he seems calloused on the outside, but what's going on on the inside? It says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up by the, like the heat of summer. And so I truly believe he had a great heaviness. And then at just the right time, just the right person uh, with um, just the right message, God was about to bring what is in darkness into light. Now, is that because God is mean? No, God does not bring what is in the darkness into light to be mean. He brings it into the light so that it can be dealt with. Because to be honest, it is not, I do not believe it is not keeping him from pursuing us. It gets in the way of us coming to him. And uh, I think you look at Adam and Eve, from the moment they sinned, God came after them and pursued them, but their nature was to do what? Was to hide from God. And so he brings it out because David is not his David right now. He's suffering. He's calloused. He is the king. And so God is going to bring this out into the light and it is going to be dealt with. And it's not out of meanness. It's out of absolute love. Now we're about to get into some hard stuff right here in scripture. And I'm just going to tell you that you've got to remember on one hand that the way that 
the Jewish people thought about the sovereignty of God is they gave him credit for everything good and everything what? Bad. Okay, that's how they wrote it. And so we have to know that, but, and it's complicated, but just as we said, sin has an effect on us personally, we're also about to see that sin also has an effect on the community. Okay, let that sink in. Sin does not just affect us personally, but it has an effect on the community, right? That's why, um, you know, Jesus's cross dealt with sin. He dealt with every person's sin. But when we pick up our cross, it is really to, to impact the community for, for God. And so we're about to see the things that were set into motion because of David's choices. And I want you to understand that we're going to see there's a difference between the punishment of sin and the consequences of sin. And so, uh, there is a verse um, that talks about, hey, don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. So many times we want to plant a seed and reap something completely different than the seed that we planted. But the fact is, there are consequences to sin. And every choice we make sets off, sets other things into motion. It's like dropping something in water and you watch the rings go out. And man, I mean, we would love to grab it and take that sucker back and stop those rings. But once it's in motion, it's in motion. And you're going to see that there are some consequences of his behavior that are going to be set in motion. So let's look at it. Verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. I know the way that is written is, uh, <laughs> it's difficult because you can break it down and say, oh, God's going to raise up evil, but what did I say? They give God credit in his absolute sovereignty for everything good and everything bad. There is a difference between the allowance of the sovereignty of God and being an agent of delivery. So that's all I'm going to say there. But just know that these are consequences of his actions that were set into motion. So he says, the sword shall never depart from your house because you didn't respect me. You overstepped me. You despised my word. Um, and so it's saying that this choice is going to bring incredible conflict in his home. And man, does it ever, if you've read ahead, right? Because you are going to see uh, Amnon, his uh, number one eldest son, is going to rape his half-sister, Tamar, who is the whole sister of Absalom, who will later on then attempt, well, later on he's going to kill Amnon for that act, and then later on, he's going to rise up against David and to try to take over his kingdom. And to be honest, under the uh, suggestion of Ahithophel, which many theologians think that is the grandfather, same man that's named as the grandfather of Bathsheba, which is interesting. Under his counsel, Absalom sleeps with David's concubines on the roof, which is kind of ironic considering 
That's where David's uh, problem started. And he's going to do that as a public act of disrespect to take over his father's kingdom. And so the bottom line, what is happening is God is saying, listen, most of your battle, and man, it's been a battle, has been in the hidden places. But buddy, the ones that are coming, they're going to be public. And that's hard. Like, I, to be honest, I hate that. You know, I would like things uh, to stay hidden in some ways, but I'll be quite honest. There's some freedom when things fall apart in public. Because I think so often we want to uh, control and keep things hidden to save face because, I don't know, pride. We want to uh, keep the veneer. And then when things happen, when consequences are set into place and as my Bible study will show, as the coffee cup spills and there's nothing you can do about it, it's all out there for the world to see. Well, guess what? Girlfriend, walk through it. I mean, hello, welcome to humanity. You're in the ditch. Other people have been in the ditch. Uh, they know what it's like. They see you there and um, you got to walk some days in the ditch, right? And so he's saying, listen, <laughs> You think you've been in the ditch? Well, you're going to spend a little bit more time in this ditch because um, it's about to get hard. It's about to get real. Um, he then says in verse 13, but David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I love David. Um, so according to David's own words, he, he owns it. I have sinned against the Lord. Now, Speaking of David's own words, do you remember when Nathan told him the story? I can see all faces, so you need to shake your heads, okay? I know you're in your room, but I need you, okay? So you remember he said, basically, he was so ticked off about the whole story, right? And he says, uh, that dude, he needs to go. Exactly. He needs to die. So aren't we so glad for David's sake, that David wasn't the last judge, right, of this whole situation, because that's what he knows he deserves. But then listen to what Nathan says. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Hmm. I can't help but think, since we have seen the uh, similarity in Genesis with this story, this so reminds me of Adam and Eve. I don't know about you, but do you remember when they sin, God goes through all the consequences, right? All the things that have now been set in motion. And in the middle of those consequences, do you remember he gives the promise of the Redeemer? I've taught y'all that umpteen jillion thousands times, right? In the middle of the consequences, what does he say? I put hatred between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. In other words, it's on and I win. That's what he says to the enemy. So right there in the middle of all the consequences, Adam and Eve hear grace. A redeemer is coming. Okay. But yet what? The consequences are still set into place. And what are they? I mean, think about it. It's brutal, right? It's Eve was the azer. She was the helper. She was warrior. Azer is used 21 times in the Old Testament uh, as a description of God when he is called to protect his people, to save his people, to be a shield. It is a powerful term. 
And so here you have, here she was, this warrior, this protection, his greatest ally, possibly the best at seeing the enemy. That's why the enemy needed to remove her to get to Adam. And here she had this strength about her. And then look at what the consequence brought. You will desire your husband, but he will what? Roll over you. That strength is going to be pushed down from here on out. You are going to be oppressed. You will be ruled over. It symbolizes not only, uh, you know, discord in the family, in the relationship, but males and females for generations to come. And so you see the consequences progress. You know, Adam, you did this. And now guess what, buddy? Uh, the garden provided for you. All you had to do was work it and tend it. It was a blessing. You never had to worry about where your next meal was coming from because it was provided for. But now you're going to have to work. The pressure providing for your family is going to be on your shoulders and you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. And by the way, the earth is not your friend. It's going to be your enemy. And I used to think it was like part of the problem was, oh, you're going to work and die. But listen, if I had heard that, I would be glad there was an end. I would be glad, oh, I'm not going to do this for eternity. I mean, I'm going to eventually die, which might even be a relief. But what I'm saying is in the middle of these consequences, you have this beautiful picture of grace. So David has been told these consequences that are going to happen, right? But yet in the middle of it, what does he say? You will not, God has put away your sin. You will not die. I want you to hear Romans 3, 23 through 26. It says this, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, you probably know that part, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Now listen to this part. Because in his divine forbearance or patience, okay, he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does that mean? It means that he passed over former sins in the Old Testament, allowing basically the cup to fill because what was he going to do at some point? He was going to take the wrath, the punishment for sin and one place, that is the cross, in the verse says, in that present time. And so in that time, God paid for the penalty of sin. He died and rose again. He conquered death, and he paid the penalty. He reserved all the past. So he died for sin of the past, present, and future. There is no condemnation now in Christ Jesus. But that does not mean that when we make choices, that those choices will not harvest consequence. And I believe that is the difference. Um, I put this is so hard after David's confession and receiving grace, the hardest consequence comes next. I'm going to tell you right now, this is the hardest pill for me to swallow, uh, the death of the child. And so we're going to see that, but... Don't even ask me to explain it. I can't. I've wrestled with it till I've just about worn myself out. Um, I could honestly sit here and give you every doctrinal answer for this situation. But at the end of the day, 
my heart still hurts, even if I know a doctrinal situation. Does that make sense about the death of this innocent child um, that David and Bathsheba had? So the one thing I know is this, I can have a pretty awesome takeaway from this section. The one thing I'm sure of, our choices don't just affect us. They set things into motion and they often hurt many around us, even the innocent even the innocent. Like Job, who by all accounts in the story was what? I mean, there's no one good, no, not one. But by the account of the story of Job, he was what? He is innocent, right? But Job says this, shall we accept good from God and not adversity? We know that the scripture says in this world, we will have trouble. Some of it is our fault. Sometimes we're the perpetrator. Sometimes we're the innocent. And sometimes it's just the sinful world that we live in and a result of what happens in a sinful world. But the bottom line, because of what David did, he lost an innocent son. And I'm going to tell you, my choices may not have killed my children, but if I'm being quite honest, many of my choices have killed my children's innocence. Many of my choices have killed my children's dreams. Many of my choices have killed their family. I mean, so I may not have killed them, but I can tell you that many choices that I have made, they've had to suffer the consequences of those choices. And to be honest, that's more excruciating than me suffering is watching someone that is innocent. But I'm going to tell you, I think, that um, I would be amiss if I did not bring up the fact that, remember, David is a type and shadow of Jesus, right? Jesus came from the line of David. David was given a covenant of his everlasting kingdom, um, and he was a type and shadow of the true king to come, which is Jesus, the king of kings and lord of lords. And I couldn't help but think that because of what David did, he lost his innocent son. But to be honest, because of what David did, God would give up his innocent son. And he gave him up to pay the penalty, the truth, not the consequence, to pay the penalty for our sin. He did all this to set things right. And I don't know if you remember me telling you that really is kind of the picture of biblical peace to set things right to make something complete, to make it whole. Um, he was the Prince of Peace and he came in order to set things right, uh, to give us right relationship with God, um, to give us peace with God. And therefore having peace with God, he tells us to what, as best as we can have peace with man. So our words having been forgiven much, we forgive. Um, having been loved much, we love. And so you have this entire beautiful picture here, I think, of the coming king and that sacrifice. I will say this. I can't help but wonder, just, you know, my brain is so ridiculous, curious, but I can't help but wonder if the child was spared. <laughs> I mean, think of this family, my girlfriend. Like, are, are you with me? What I just read off, like, we only have the highlights. This family would, would make our, well, my um, 
broken family look like, you know, the Brady Bunch? Because I'm going to tell you right now, we're given the highlights of this uh, rape and murder and uh, throw in a whole coup uh, and just the whole thing. There were lots of sons and daughters. There were lots of wives. Can you imagine the competition, the jealousy, the lies, the violence, all that was going on in this family? And I just wonder if this innocent child who was already in the hands of God was just spared was just taken. So I've just decided I'm going to rest right there. Can I interrupt? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Well, as you're talking about sparing this, if he was spared from stuff, I couldn't help but think of what it would have been like if the child lived, because this is a, a child that David tried to pawn off as Uriah's son. And uh, yeah. And yeah, I mean, we're only speculating, but that's, that kid would have had something to live with because it would have gotten back to him. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. So I don't think much stayed private in the palace, do you? I do not. No. Gossip wasn't invented in the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, we've just perfected it a little bit. All right, here we go. It says, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David, therefore, sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went into his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows where the Lord would be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him that he will not return to me. The very first thing we see is David as a result of the sickness of this child, David fasts and he prays. He fell before God and it said that he laid on the ground all night. Now, it's fun to pick up similarities in scripture, okay? Can you think of a story right before this where someone chose not to go home, but to lay on the ground? Okay, Uriah, right? And so it's, it's like this act of humility. There is something about laying on the ground that is a picture of humility. And so you have this king who at one point, you know, he, he had forgotten his position. He humbles himself and he lays prost, uh, you know, I always mess up this word, prostrate, <laughs> right? <laughs> On the ground and as an act of humility before the Lord. And it says that he begs, basically he begs God. Listen, he knows he's undeserving. That's not the point. He's undeserving, but what he also knows is that God is full of mercy and grace. And I find this interesting because you'll hear um, 
people today talking about the God of the Old Testament as if this God of the Old Testament doesn't match the God of the New. Like, God of the Old Testament is angry. He's filled with wrath. But what I think is very interesting is that the people of the Old Testament don't seem to view God that way. They view God, they're always talking about slow to anger, abounding in love, great in loving kindness, that he is merciful, that he is gracious. And I think you need to remember the barbaric culture, this pagan culture. Listen, it was not ever something that a pagan God loved his people. Pagan gods were angry. Uh, they were, they needed to be appeased. And yet right here, you have David fully aware that his God was abounding in love, that he dealt very often in mercy and grace. And so he's appealing to that. And basically he's saying things like, I know I don't deserve it. I know I have no right to ask, but I'm asking. Or he's saying things like, I accept, I know, I know what you've said and I accept your word and I'll accept it, Lord. I will accept it, but it's not final yet. So God, I ask, I'm just going to ask. And he just kept coming forward. And it says that when he did this, he did not leave his house. I think that's really interesting because this was a private deal. And um, I find it's interesting. He didn't start a prayer chain. He didn't, uh, he didn't call on, you know, anyone else to join in and to pray out loud, because I'm going to tell you what, this was one serious battle. And I believe that some battles need to be faced alone. And I think some battles, uh, solitude is essential and silence is necessary. Some battles are so private and so intense and so heartfelt that they can only be fought alone. And, and I got to thinking about, you know, think about Jacob when he had his greatest battle, right? He was alone when he wrestled with God. He wrestled all night. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with him, but I'm telling you, I have fought God like a junkyard dog. I mean, just, you just wrestle and wrestle. And that's something that we do privately inside. And I think that's where we it makes sense to me that the Holy Spirit at times groans on our behalf because it is so deep and so private and so personal. And to be honest, I think at this point, anyone's words would have been a distraction. It reminds me of, think about Job in his agony. How distracting were the words of his friends? <laughs> like sometimes you don't need the distraction of other people's um, opinions or other people making you feel better or making you feel worse or you need to hash it out with God and this is what he does in times of desperate soul searching we need to hear from God he didn't need to hear from anyone except God um and then did you did you notice that they they began to question his servants question basically his servant said, what the heck? Now, you know, this is half power version. It's not the message. It's just the way I read it. Um, what the heck? They're like, what just happened? What, what did we just see? When the baby was ill, he was a mess. He wouldn't eat. He was laying on the floor. Matter of fact, we were so scared to tell him that the baby was dead because we thought he was going to kill himself if we told him that. 
And now all of a sudden the baby dies and we tell him and he just gets up and he takes a shower and brushes his hair and has dinner and he goes to the worship service and they are sitting here shocked. And, uh, and I think it's probably because what was the, the culture? The culture would have been when, when did all of that, I mean, not that you wouldn't pray and seek God in that, but when did you truly start to show outward grief? after the death and yet he gets up and he eats and he is revived and i think it's interesting um i want to say first off when you go through battles and soul searching and all of these things just be ready to know this people always have an opinion right people question everything so you just might as well be prepared for that i mean they're gonna say omg have you heard or did you know, or why would he, or mm, I get it now. It must have been, and they're always trying to look and figure out what's going on and why we do the things we do when it is a private battle and it's what? None your business, right? But everybody always has an opinion about it. Um, and there you go. But I don't think for one minute that David did not continue to feel grief. I think he did continue to feel grief. I don't think that just because he got up off the floor, washed and ate dinner, that it meant he was done grieving. But what it meant was that he had accepted what God had chosen, that he had accepted what God said and decided, and that he began to take steps forward. What did he do? Well, he said it. He left the baby in God's hands. He said, the baby is with God. Uh, he cannot come back to me now. But one day, what? I will go to be with him. There's some theology right there. But what do we know? It wasn't David's day to die. And so what is his choice? Move on. You have to live. And I don't think for one minute he didn't grieve. I don't think the grief is over. Absolutely not. Um, but he had to make the choice that God had allowed this baby to die and he was going to accept it and he was going to leave that baby in God's hands and that he was going to move forward. And I think that's a very uh, big takeaway, moving forward. Because what would the enemy want? He would want you not to move forward, right? The enemy would love it if we could get stuck in our guilt and shame. I mean, David is sitting there. The baby died basically because of his choice. That's what was told to him. And so can you imagine the guilt and shame and grief that he had been feeling? And the enemy would love to uh, make him stuck. I think the enemy tries to convince us that our sin disqualifies us from playing. Have you ever been there? No, I have. Have you ever been to a place where you feel like uh, you are disqualified from playing? Why would anybody want to listen to you? You can't get your own crap together. So why would anybody care to listen? Or is this always going to be this way? Am I always going to struggle with this? I, you know, what right do I have to stand up and do anything? How could God use me now? I mean, I've fallen so far now. I'm so far in the ditch. He doesn't even know I'm there. I mean, 
that that's how you feel. And the enemy wants, basically, he wants to put you on the bench. He wants you to buy into that because if he can put you on the bench, he has you. Because let me tell you what the greatest thing that the enemy hates. Think Revelations 21 says it. How do you defeat the enemy? The blood of the lamb, always. And what? A testimony. Let me tell you what the enemy hates. He fears the testimony of a sinner saved by grace. I mean, think about it. The demoniac and the Decapolis, who was like a monster in the flesh, what a great testimony, right? Changed an entire culture over there to, in my opinion, when Jesus went over there to feed the 4,000, where do you think those 4,000 came from? The testimony of the monster who was now at peace. And so I'm telling you that in this situation, David, God had not chosen to take David. He chose to take the child. So David had to live and he was the king. And guess what, dude, you got to keep going. You got to take one day at a time and keep going and don't get stuck in your guilt and shame because you have a job to do. You're still the image bearer as broken as we think we are. And in relationship with God, he can still use you to do your job, to be an image bearer of God, just like us. Um, and so David doesn't give up. He goes in, it says, and he comforts Bathsheba. Ah, Bathsheba, right? Boy, what about her grief? I can't imagine. And we're not told. We have no idea the grief that she's experienced. We don't know the grief of the loss of her husband, grief over um, the situation, grief over the life change, grief over losing this child. But now David doesn't seem so calloused. Um, and you see him, it says that he goes in and he, uh, he comforts her. And it says that they conceive Solomon. And who, by the way, God sends Nathan back to give him a new name, which means beloved of the Lord. And so you see this beautiful picture that in the depths of what Brian describes as this ditch, one of the greatest uh, mistakes, sinful choices uh, of David's entire life, God does what? Even then he can restore. And he can use all of that uh, for his glory. And Solomon would be the next king. We're not going to go into great detail about that because I want to set us up for sure for chapter 13 um, next week. But um, you see this entire picture, even after all of this failure, that God reaches in and he is able to restore. Um, in verse 26 through 31, if you go back, uh, hold on. I want to read you this quote from Swindoll because I think it's good. It says, when you face the consequences of the whirlwind, you must guard against bitterness. Right? When you face the consequences of the whirlwind, you must guard against bitterness. And I actually added to that. And I put, yeah, and emotional detachment. Because sometimes as you're moving forward, the consequences become so bad and so rough that yes, you could get bitter. You can also emotionally detach to where you're like, you know what? I don't care because what can I do about it now? It's done and everything's a mess and anything I try to do to fix it doesn't seem work like it works and it is what it is. Why try? All is lost. 
like major pity party, right? So sometimes when you're walking through the, the consequences of what you've set in motion, you can get really bitter. Like, Lord, really? I confessed. I, I mean, I, I got real. I, I confessed and, and I, I know I, I've set into motion these things and, and all this, but God, this is a lot. Like, this is too much. I can't, I can't live under the burden of all this is happening. Do you see? I need help. And you know, and you're, you kind of get angry. Like, what about all the good I did? Can't you help a sister out? Like, this is rough. And then you can get really um, disheartened. Um, but David does accept what God um, tells him. But I don't think it was easy because if it was easy, I don't think we would have Psalm 51. Look at Psalm 51. I mean, I don't care that he got up and ate and washed his hair and washed his face and changed his clothes. I don't think it was done because I think Psalm 51 lasted. I don't know about you, but I have, I have agonized through Psalms 51 before. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Please blot out my transgressions. Haven't you ever wanted a dang do-over? Does anybody else have stuff on their record that you would just really like to eliminate? You just like to take off and can you at least let me forget it? Like, I know you've forgotten it, but I need a little assistance too, because the devil keeps throwing it back in my face and I keep remembering it and I keep going back to Psalm 51. So can you help a sister out and maybe kind of give me amnesia about a few things, but he never seems to do that, huh? Says, can you blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin? For I know my transgression. How? Because it's always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words. Man, I love to read that, but I don't know, Brian, that's a hard one to swallow because my sins weren't just against God. And other people's sins weren't just against God, they were against me. And so I don't think this is giving us a pass not to go to our brethren when we need, you know, to get things right. But ultimately it is a sin against God, right? Yep. Says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Like, really God, what do you expect? I was a sinner from birth. I'm doing the best I can. Like I'm just a dang sinner and I just keep sinning. And behold, you delight in truth in the inward parts and you teach me wisdom in, in the secret, in, my, in the secret heart. That's part of God bringing things into light so it can deal, he can deal with it. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So you tell me that his repentance went on seven days and then he got up or whatever, washed his hair, ate, and he was done with it. No. He walked with this. I don't believe grief is something we get over. I think it's something we take with us along the way and we learn how to carry it and how to use it, how to teach others through it. Um, and it's there. But I, I don't think this was an easy transition. I, I don't. I think his friends judged it and didn't understand it, but I think he continued to grieve. When you look at the end of this chapter, in verse 26 through 31, it goes back to war. Let me just give you just a couple of statements about that. And then we'll be ready for chapter 13 next week. Um, bottom line, 
do you remember, it's been a while, but who is Joab fighting? He's fighting the Ammonites, right? Remember, David didn't go out to war and uh, he sent Uriah to the front and how stupid that was because back then it said that Joab already had the city under siege. Remember that? But they instigated a fight and they called some of the bad boys out and they got in a fight and then they went back too close to the wall and uh, Uriah was killed. And David, when he heard, was like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Oh, well, Uriah died. Oh, okay, crap happens. Remember that whole story? Okay, so this is still the Ammonites. So this is like, has gone on for some believe anywhere between nine months and two years, this battle's gone on. Why? Well, because first off, they've sieged the city, so they're starving them out, okay? Because these are walled cities. But at this point, it says that they have taken the citadel, so that's big time. That is the king's quarters, okay? They've taken that now. And it says the cities of water, or it's talking about their water source that would probably have been uh, fortified huge. And if you have their water source, man, you got it, okay? And so Joab is basically telling David, okay, you need to come out to battle now. We have got this thing under wraps, but you need to come and you need to come lead this battle so that when we take the city, you will be present for it. And basically you will be given credit, which that was the case. He came in, they took the city. It says he took the crown, which weighed about 75 pounds which was probably not the crown that the actual king wore, but more like a crown on a statue of the king such. I mean, it was 75 pounds of gold. It had jewels. And it said that, you know, he, he wore that on his head and the loot was just unbelievable. But my point is this. I think what is happening is, at least the way I see it, is that when David now starts to move forward, do you remember what got him in trouble? It was a time when kings should go off to war, yet David stayed home and he got his eye on a beautiful woman. And now this entire ordeal has happened and now he's getting his eye back to where it needs to be as the commander in chief. And we see him now putting his head down, going to war, moving on as the king. But the sad thing in order to set up next week is it seems like once he got his eye back on his job, he kind of lost focus of home. And I'm gonna tell you what, all heck is about to break loose at home. So would you please do me a favor and would you read chapter 13 well, okay? Because I'm gonna go through this chapter. It is a painful chapter. And uh, I don't think Tamar is the only woman in history that has ever had uh, violence. Um, happened to her. And it's amazing to me how you see some of the similarities even then of how people handle that kind of thing. Some people are still handling it that way today. And uh, there's a lot of pain there. And uh, my heart goes out to Tamar. And it's a very sad story. So um, make sure that you're familiar with it. So Brian, what's some good takeaways? you think we had today? Well, you talked about not blaming God for the consequences. We see yeah. that in James, right? Yeah. Not to blame God. It says in Proverbs 19, 3, that a man's own folly ruins his life, 
yet his heart rages against the Lord. Mm. And uh, yeah, that's obviously the wrong take. So, so I, yeah, I like what you said there about, you know, we want a do-over, <laughs> but, but do-overs don't dismiss the, the ramifications of our mistakes. Yeah. You know, I love uh, the fact that, I mean, even in the middle of this entire mess, the beauty of God's grace, yeah. because our choices, no doubt, we will reap what we sow in the sense that every choice sets out, you know, it, it starts the ball rolling of consequences that can come from our choices. But the beauty is that God never leaves us even in the midst of those um, consequences. Mm-hmm. And um, I think you're going to see next week that David had the tendency um, to, in some ways, live in his own guilt and therefore not stand up to do what he needed to do from that point. And I, you know, and that's, that's hard. Um, We've got to be able, I think forgiving, I can understand God's forgiveness of me, but sometimes I don't know about you guys, but I have a hard time forgiving myself. And then when you have to live through the consequences and you realize it's a result of some of your choices, it is very hard not to blame yourself or have a pity party or get stuck. And I just think, you know, at that point, we always have to just keep our eye fixed on God. We've been forgiven and he will walk through us through those consequences and he will make beauty from that which has been broken. And, um, Date, remember, in all of this, what has not changed? David is still the man after God's own heart. Why? Because of what Brian says. He keeps freaking getting up. He keeps getting up. He's like Rocky Balboa, man. <laughs> you win, he wins. Rocky wins because he just won't stay down, right? He just keeps getting back up. And so it's just like, God, I love you, dang it. I just love you, dang it. I'm just... I'm just going to keep getting back up and coming and I'm so dense. Why do I do the same things? Um, but I just love you. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.